Yay, we don't have to listen to Rick. Let's run. Uh, for those who need notes, there might still be some in the back there. Otherwise, they're on the website if you want to go to the website. And before I start, I want to take care of a little um, house business real briefly. Um, about six weeks ago, we had a lady show up who uh, wanted to integrate in and become a part of our community. Her name is Esther. And um, Esther, first Sunday she was here, came and asked me what our church felt about prophecy and how, if she had prophecies for us, how would it work? And basically told her, you know, we, we believe in the prophetic, but I don't know you. And so we're going to set guidelines just so we can trust you. And in the process, um, she went around those guidelines and began to prophesy things that um, weren't necessarily um, of the Lord. I don't doubt this. I believe she loves Jesus with all her heart. I don't doubt that she has a prophetic gift. However, there is mixture in what she's been saying, um, her own voice and other voices. And uh, so as I sat her down to bring correction and had other people with me, um, she began to tell me that she had been sent to Azusa to oversee all the churches, to bring correction to all the churches, um, that she was here to bring correction to me because I have, I'm controlling and I have certain issues. Long story short is I've asked her to move on and to find another church to attend. Um, and I just, she, uh, in our communication, I asked her to stop communicating because she got a lot of texts and emails and started personally communicating with people. And I asked her to stop. Um, so then she just continued to do it, but said, don't tell Rick I'm doing this. So if you get an email from her, you get a text from her, I'm asking you not to respond. Um, just, just to let it fall to the ground, delete it. You can read it. I'm not going to tell you what to do with it, but don't respond. And uh, if by chance she tries to call you or contact you, just love her, you know, and tell engage. Just loves her, but um, um, just bless her as she goes and don't engage because she is, she is misguided and um, she doesn't have the understanding she thinks she has. She believes she has, she's a, a prophet, an apostle, and a pastor. Um, so I just, that's all I want to say about that. And the interesting thing is, um, I've been working on this message for about six weeks, and it deals with some of this. So I just want you to t know the two, one didn't come because of the other. It's like, believe it or not, the Holy Spirit knows things before we do. Uh, he knows the end before we know the beginning. And so we're going to be looking, and it has to do with love, but when we go to uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and you look at love, uh, verse 14 really says, it says, yes, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Um, and so the two go hand in hand. And so I'm going to talk about spiritual gifts and love today because we can't separate the two. Um, you know, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, but the manifestation of the spirit is to given to each one of us for the pro for, of all of us. So each one of us have been given spiritual giftings by the Holy Spirit that are for the benefit of everybody else in the community. And not all of us have the same gifting, same abilities, but 
God in his great wisdom and in his great sovereignty has worked it out to where all of our gifts work together for the good of all of us. And that's, that, that's part of how community works. So, and, and according to the Bible, the primary, listen closely, the primary reason for spiritual gifts is to empower us to reach the lost. That's, that's the primary purpose of spiritual gifts. And this isn't Rick saying, this is what the Bible says. Jesus says in Luke 24, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, which is the Holy Spirit, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Then in Acts 4, this is Peter's prayer. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, but he says, If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So Paul says, when an unbeliever comes into your midst, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are supposed to work to convince and convict the unbeliever. And Paul says it happens that as the secrets of their heart are revealed, they fall on their face in repentance to God and give their heart to Jesus. That's the heart of why Jesus gave us the, Holy, gave us the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. But understand the Bible is, it's not, most people when they think of the gifts, or we think of gifts, we, we concentrate on 1 Corinthians 12. We think the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But Paul writes to the Romans, he writes to the Corinthians, he writes to the Ephesians, and he talks about three different packages of gifts. When he writes to the Romans, he talks about the gifts of God. And the gifts of God are prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. He specifically says, Romans 12, these are the gifts of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, various tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Then when he writes to the church at Ephesus, he says that Jesus has given us gifts also, and these are office gifts. And these gifts are apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. So... <clears throat> There are up of the body of Christ that are given to the body of Christ. And Paul is clear, it's for the building up of the body of Christ for each one of us to function in a way that God has given to us and created us to do. Now, the interesting thing of all the gifts, the gift of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the gifts of Jesus, there's one common gift. Prophecy. Prophecies in all three of them. The gifts of Jesus, the office gift is the gift of prophet, but you can't be a prophet and not prophesy. So, the gifts of the Father is prophecy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy, the gifts of Jesus is prophecy. Um, <clears throat> now, 1 Corinthians 12 includes what I would, for no better term, I would call the most controversial gifts. Um, and you know, he says this, and I just went down the list, but he says, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. And the, the most fundamental reason 
we're to, to desire these gifts is because the Bible commands us to do so. We can't be selective in our walk with God and say, I have to keep this command, but I don't have to keep this one. We'll say, I'll keep the command to not commit adultery and not commit murder and to not covet and to love God. But Jesus gives us specific commands, and Paul does. And Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth, he says, earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. 1 Corinthians 14, he says, but pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Paul also says that we are to pursue love. So it's, these are Holy Spirit imperatives, to pursue and to desire. They're not options. These are commands of actions we're supposed to do. We're to pursue love. We are to desire spiritual gifts. And, you know, look it. I'll be the first one to tell you, loving people sometimes is hard. Love is not easy. You can't just sing a Beatles song and say all you need is love and everything, everybody lives happily ever after. Love is hard. And it may not be controversial in the church, but love is demanding. It requires a lot for us to love one another. And, and there are people who will use love to manipulate or abuse people. They will say they do certain things because they, they love them. Um, you know, spiritual gifts are also intimidating and sometimes even strange. Um, and they're potentially dangerous if they're misused, if, if they're abused. Um, even the less controversial ones. I mean, I, I personally, and, and maybe you have heard, but we've seen damage done by false teachers. We've seen damage done by deceptive administrators who have embezzled tons of money from churches. There are pastors in prison for those types of actions. We've seen manipulative leaders who will take scripture out of context and use it to their benefit, to their glory, to accomplish their purposes. So handling spiritual gifts is like handling dynamite. In fact, the power of the Holy Spirit, the word for that is dunamis, which means, which is the derivative of the word dynamite. So there is power, but dynamite is dangerous if you don't use it right. And so, you know, when we rightly use the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's explosive in a good way. You know, um, we can see lives change. You see people get saved. When a word of wisdom is given into somebody's life, we can see the explosion of the revelation of God knows them and loves them, we can see lives drastically change. But we can also see prophetic words that are come from the mind of man that are manipulative and controlling and blow up, and they can cause a mess. So the same gift can cause an explosion with two different results. And so because of that, it's tempting for many fellowships, many pastors to not use spiritual gifts just to set them aside and say, look it, we're just going to preach Jesus, which that's all we should be preaching is Jesus. But remember, Paul says, when people come and, and, and the Lord reveals the, the life of someone with a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, it says their heart is moved, they repent, they fall before God, and they're saved. So spiritual gifts are actually an extra tool in our belt 
to fulfill the command to go to the nations to preach the gospel to every creature to make disciples. Spiritual gifts are a part of our tool belt to make disciples, to bring people to Christ. And so the early Christians in the church of Corinth, one of the reasons Paul had to write this was because people had been abusing spiritual gifts. They'd been abusing people by using spiritual gifts in the name of the Lord. And as a result, they were in the process of saying, no more spiritual gifts. We're just going to cut the whole thing out because it's too messy. And that's why Paul says, do not forbid spitting in tongues. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. He's saying, look it. Yes, there are knuckleheads out there. Yes, there are manipulators. There are people that will use scripture. Can I just tell you the devil loves scripture? He loves to twist it. If you don't think so, read about Jesus in the wilderness and his temptation. Jesus started scripture. The devil said, I can play that game too. And he took scripture. He misapplied it in order to try and tempt Jesus to do what he shouldn't do. So um, it was tempting not to use messy gifts. It's tempting here to not use messy gifts. It's real easy to get into the easy groove and let's just sail on a on a placid sea and enjoy life. But the Bible commands us to pursue love and commands us to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It's not an option. It's not like you're enrolling in school and you have electives because these are gifts. They're given. They're not something you pick off the shelf and say, I want that and I want that. It's something God gives to us, something the Holy Spirit implants in us to be used not to our benefit and not to our glory, but to the benefit of the kingdom of God, to the glory of the name of God. And so God has purposes which, listen, makes it worth the danger. The purpose of the gifts, the reason God gave us these gifts makes it worth the danger because ultimately it's to bring glory to him. So pursuing love and desiring spiritual gifts according to the Bible are not to be separate actions. They're, they're to work hand in hand. These gifts are given to help each other and to help the church. And Paul goes on, you know, People want to talk about 1 Corinthians 12, about spiritual gifts, they'll go there. But they don't look at the whole chapter. Because when he's talking about those spiritual gifts, the context is the verses before and the verses after, where he's talking about the purpose of the gifts. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 7, says, you know, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then I went down. I've already mentioned those gifts. And he jumps into verse 12. He says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? That's a rhetorical question. You know, He's not saying, I don't know. He's saying, look it, not everybody is a, an apostle. Not everybody is a prophet. Not everybody, you know, is a teacher or worker of miracles or does healings or speaks in tongues or interpret. But he says this, earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I will show you a more excellent way. 
Though I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and clanging cymbal. So Paul says, you got you to gotta desire the gifts, you got to pursue them, but without love, they have no value. The gifts become a messy explosion that you'll pick up residue for many for the rest of their lives. I can't tell you how many times in my life as a pastor, I've spent just as much time cleaning up messes that lasted for years because of manipulation and intimidation that was brought on by prophetic words, by prophetic people who had ulterior motives. And so love is the aim of spiritual gifts, period. It's possible to possess and exercise spiritual gifts without love. It is possible to use them wrongly, to apply them incorrectly, and to misinterpret 1 Corinthians. Though, but Paul says this in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. Though I have the gift of prophecy, which remember, the gift of God is prophecy, the gift of the Holy Spirit is prophecy, the gift of Jesus is the prophetic. Paul says, although I have this gift and understand all mysteries and I have all knowledge and though I have all faith to remove a mountain. Mark eleven twenty three, Jesus said, have faith in God. For I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and do not doubt in your heart, but believe those things that you say you will have, you will have what you say. Paul says, if you have that kind of faith to make that mountain move and you don't have love, big deal. You're nothing. Love is the key to everything. So even though we pursue spiritual gifts, even though spiritual gifts are a vital part of the active body of Christ, even though that is all true, if we neglect some aspect of love in using spiritual gifts, we fail to glorify God. The moment spiritual gifts are motivated by anything but love, God's not glorified. Man becomes the center of what we're doing, particularly the one who's operating the gift. That's one of the ways, and listen, this is why Paul says this. One of the ways we're able to judge spiritual gifts is by love. Love is the filter by which we judge spiritual gifts. If the result, if the motivation, if the impact of that spiritual gift being administered is not love, then we have to go back and ask ourselves, what was the motivation of that gift? Because if that gift is not motivated by love, it can only be motivated by something else, and that is love for the self of the person who's operating that gift. So love must always be the motivation for everything we do, particularly in spiritual gifts. So we're meant to desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we're meant to pursue love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest tool, the greatest gift we have. Love, I mean, in, in that class with those kids, one of the primary things they're going to learn is God is love. God is love. And God demonstrated his love for us you know, in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as John says, and this is love, not that we loved him first, but that he loved us and sent his son as a payment for our sins. Everything God has done and ever will do is motivated by love. The only way you and I will ever look and act like Jesus is if we're motivated by love, period. Love is the key 
to everything. And so, and, and what happens is, with love, we have the Spirit's empowerment to be strengthened and to, to speak to the saints and see unsaved people delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son of Light. That's what Paul says to the church at Colossians. We want people delivered. Can I tell you, there are people who are used spiritual gifts who are hearing the wrong voices who need to be delivered. They may have a gift. They may have a gift of, of prophecy or word of knowledge, but when they allow that to be mixed with their own thoughts and they allow that to be manipulated by voices other than that of the Holy Spirit, they need deliverance so that they have clarity to be able to hear what is the true word. Let me tell you, the airwaves, just like if, if God could give us a moment to see what's actually taking place in the air, if we could see all the texts and emails and social media going back and forth right now. I mean, every person is sending a text. Well, that's the same sort of thing is going on in the spiritual realm. There are, there are voices going back and forth waiting for an ear to, to embrace them and accept them. And the only voice we need to know is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, my, my sheep know my voice. Once you know that voice, you know how to operate. But when you begin to confuse your voice with the voice of God, they can open to hearing other voices as well. And the result of that is confusion and manipulation, um, and it's not a good thing. And so what does it mean to earnestly desire spiritual gifts? This, this book is not a how-to manual. When it tells us to desire spiritual gifts, when it tells us to operate in them, what it does is that God holds out a treasure and he bids us to seek it. When he says desire it, he's saying come and get it. He says pursue love, desire spiritual gifts. And so, you know, this is what the, the writer of Proverbs, particularly this one is Solomon. This is what Solomon says. My son, if you receive my words, speaking prophetically, and treasure my commands within you, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The key to knowing God is knowing his word. As you know his word and as you know God, you begin to trust him and have faith in what he's doing. And then we begin to step out and allow gifts to work through us. So there's nothing in here that's going to say do A, B, C, D, and G is going to happen. The thing we do is we trust God, we surrender our life to Him, we open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, we let the Holy Spirit speak to us and through us, and we see His kingdom come. So love is the key to everything. I'm not, I'm not going to read 1 Corinthians 13 right now, but I want to emphasize verse 14, because I think there's a problem in the charismatic Pentecostal church. 1 Corinthians 14 says, Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, and then he says, but above all that you may prophesy. To pursue means to do something with intense effort um, to a goal. In other words, it's like running a race. You are going to put everything you have in to go after it. To desire is to set one's heart and to long for, to be wholehearted towards something. In the charismatic Pentecostal church, I, I, I believe it's slowly switched. I believe there are many who are pursuing spiritual gifts and desire love. So they're going after gifts and they're hoping love lands in their lap. 
But we're supposed to pursue love, pursue love, go after it with everything we have. Ask yourself, have I lived my life pursuing love? What does that look like? What does that look like in my life to pursue love? Yes, desire spiritual gifts, but pursue love, pursue love, pursue love. You know, another thing in, in, the, in the church, and I just want to say the charismatic church, we, we have this tendency to long for presence and glory. But can I tell you, if presence and glory were enough to sustain love, Lucifer would never have fallen, and a third of the angels of heaven would not have followed him. Let me say that again. If the presence of God and the glory of God is enough for us to love God, Lucifer would have never fallen. This is one of the three archangels. This is one of the ones created by God, and he was created to worship. What happened was, if, when you read about Lucifer and Ezekiel, Lucifer, yes, Lucifer was compelled by love for himself. And because he loved himself more than he loved God, because he loved his glory more than God's glory, because he said, I will ascend the throne of the Most High and exalt myself above the throne, he fell. So even though he had the presence of God, he had the glory of God, he loved himself more than God. What keeps those 24 elders around the throne going? What keeps the cherubim going? For God. Of heaven crying out, holy, 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 it's their love for God. That is, that is consolidated by his presence and his glory. I'm telling the, the angels that did not fall, they did not fall because they were compelled by love. When they, when they captivate, remember, you read the, the book of Revelation, they fall down. Then when they lift their head up, they go, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Then they fall down again. Then they get up. They have a new revelation. Holy, holy, holy. Why? Because they love this creator. They love his son who sits at his right hand. Understand, with Lucifer, the 24 elders weren't there. The reason we know the 20, well, the elders may have been there. Let me correct that. We know the bowls of incense weren't there. Because the bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. There were no saints praying when Lucifer fell. So he didn't have that incense, but the Bible talks about the fragrance of Christ. He had the fragrance of heaven. He had the presence and the glory of the Lord, but he fell. So it wasn't enough to sustain it. Yes, we love the presence of the Lord. We love the glory of the Lord, but we want it to come because of our love for him, not because of our love for the presence. Do you understand the difference? We're to pursue him. We're to pursue love. God is love. That's what we're to pursue. So, and when you really pursue something, you really go after what you want. You don't wait for somebody to come and hand it to you in a package fully assembled, ready to use. You go looking, you pursue it. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, look it, seek, knock, ask, go for it, go for it, go for it, and you'll get it. If you really want it, if something is worth going after, you're going to pursue it with all your heart. And that's what Paul's saying, pursue love. Love is the key to everything, everything. I want to jump over to uh, Acts chapter 20 because 
God loves us so much that he wanted us to see what happens when love does not become the motivation of the actions of our life. Now, in Acts chapter 20, and we've gone through the book of Acts, but I'll just bring you up to date. Remember, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He wanted to be to Jerusalem for, for Passover, but he missed it. So now his goal is to be there before Pentecost. And so he's, he's taking this journey, but he has, he has this concern. Paul has lived in Ephesus a total of three years, two years at one time and over other times three years together. The greatest signs and wonders and miracles and revival that we have recorded, the greatest revival ever recorded in the New Testament took place in Ephesus. So Paul knows he loves them, they love him. He made tents there. He worked with Priscilla and Aquila. They, they cut off his apron and put prayer claws under their pillows for people to be healed. I mean, Ephesus had a real encounter with Paul, and he knows if he stops in, in Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem, he's going to miss Pentecost. So instead, he goes down to Miletus, and when he gets to Miletus, he says, okay, I want you to go up and get the leaders of the church, bring them down to me, because I, I want to spend some time with them, because this is the last time I'll see them. So that's what he does. He sends messenger up. He brings the leaders of the church at Ephesus down to Miletus, and this is you know, where we pick up in Acts chapter 20. He's talking to the leaders of the church at Ephesus in Miletus, not in Ephesus. And he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood for I know this after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves therefore watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone. I'm reminding you one more time. So Paul says, I'm, guys, I'm reminding you one more time. Every time I prayed, I ended up crying. Every time I prayed, I ended up crying because I was so compelled for you to remain true to God when deception comes in. Because the Holy Spirit has shown me deception is going to come. Wolves from without and wolves from within. People you don't know and people you do know. And they're going to have one goal and one goal alone. That is to draw them unto themselves and away from God. And you as the leaders of the church need to make sure that doesn't happen. So he's saying, take heed. He's warning these leaders. He's saying, guys, pay attention. Men are going to rise up. Perverse things, false prophecies. People will get up and say, the Lord told me to say this. The Lord said this about you. You have to be discerning. You have to be able to stand. You have to know truth. Then it goes on in verse 36. Um, he's, he's leaving them. So now he, he's told them, I'm not going to see you again. And it's hard for all of them. They're all crying. you got these all grown men having a crybaby party. And they're all there crying. And Paul begins to pray for them. And he says, and when he had said these things, they knelt down and prayed. He knelt down and prayed with all of them. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke. They would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so then he sails off to Jerusalem. Paul was so concerned that the church in Ephesus would be deceived by false teachers 
that even after spending three years with them, even after he tells them, you've, saw me, you've seen me cry when I'm praying that I don't want you guys to be deceived by false teachers. He wants to tell them one more time. He says, guys, I'm hoping it sinks in. I'm hoping you hold on because this is the last time I'm telling you. You're not going to see me again. So please pay attention. So how did the Ephesians do? We actually have in Revelation chapter 2, we have a letter from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. And this letter is written 40 or 50 years after this meeting. So 40 to 50 years later, John is on the Isle of Patmos. He is a political prisoner. And Jesus dictates a letter to Paul, I mean to John, to write to, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And listen to what he says. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That sounds like we've arrived. But then there's the nevertheless. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I saw also hate. So Jesus, like a good parent, says, let me tell you what you're doing good first. Let me tell you why I'm really proud of you. You're hard. You're doing hard work for the kingdom. You're enduring through difficult times. You're dealing with the knuckleheads. I told you that we're going to come. These false prophets, these evil people that would tell you things that weren't true. And you were able to recognize that and take authority over them. In fact, the worst of the bunch were the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans was a sect that taught what has really infiltrated into the American church today, false grace. The Nicolaitans taught it's okay to sin because know that you've been forgive you. So go ahead and do what feels good and then just know that you've been forgiven. And, and Jesus said, I love that you hate their teaching because I hate it too. But he says, guys, you forgot something on the way. You forgot love. And he says, I have this against you. And he tells him, you got to repent. And the way you repent is to return to where you began. Now, there he says, come back to the first day you encountered me. What caused you to pursue me? Was it despising the false teachings or was it loving me? And if you come back to loving me and then you despise the false teachings, you look like me. You see, we're supposed to, you know, Stand against false apostles, stand against false prophecies, stand against false teachers. But if we don't do it in love, Jesus says, that's, that's not the way I did it, and that's not the way I want you to do it. And so, listen, the devil doesn't care which side of the boat you fall out of. He just wants you out of the boat. He's going to do whatever he can to get your eyes off the prize 
And he would love, 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 love if along the way you'd pick up a religious spirit and think everything you were doing was in the name of God. He just loves the religious spirit. It's his greatest weapon. Religious spirit can take the Bible and twist it and make it sound like it's saying what it doesn't say. A religious spirit can manipulate you into submission. And the Ephesians didn't fall for it. They stood their ground. No deceiver, no false apostles, no false teachers, no false prophets got away with anything. But along the way, they became like Paul when he was zealous for Judaism. When he was pursuing Christians and killing them, he believed he was doing the right thing for God. But when God encounters you on the road and says, why are you persecuting me? Paul has to readjust his life. He has to take time off and go off for a few years and, and readjust his thinking. And so we need to understand that we need to be mindful that if the enemy can get us to pursue doctrine over love, if we want to pursue being doctrinally correct to the point of being hard-hearted and hard-headed and we forsake love, the devil has us exactly where he wants us because he knows doctrine does not win. Love wins every time. Love is the only thing that never fails. So not only did Jesus write a letter to the Ephesians 50 years after they received their instruction, he gave instruction to us 2,000 plus years before he returns. And it was when the disciples who believed he was coming back said, okay, we know you're coming back, but can you at least give us a clue? I mean, you say no one knows the day or the hour. Can you just tell us kind of what to expect? And that's where Jesus goes through this list. He says, you know, Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, he says, take heed. The same thing Paul said to the church at Ephesus three times, take heed. Jesus now says to you and I, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Ended. Will be nations for my name's sake. And there will be many offended. Will betray one another. Will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And, become, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Will, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus tells us exactly what happened to the Ephesians is going to happen to us, only worse. And, and by the way, we see it every day. I mean, another earthquake where they're expecting a tsunami in Bali right now. Earthquake last night. Wars everywhere, rumors of wars, Christians being killed left and right in Iraq, Iran, Somalia, all those parts of the earth. 
All of that's happening right now. But Jesus says that many will be offended. Make sure your love does not grow cold. Can I tell you the greatest, the greatest enemy in the church when Jesus returns is going to be offense with Jesus. And the reason people will be offended with Jesus is because they have a false expectation of what Christianity has earned them. We think because we're saved, we have eternal protection. That we are just going to live happily ever after, and then one day, poof, we're going to hear trumpets and we'll be gone. But that's not what Jesus said. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. They will... You'll be hated by nations. Many will be offended and betray one another. The church that's going to be offended is the church that believes none of this is going to happen to them and they're going to get offended with Jesus. I always use this example, and I know you've heard it before, but pretend like you haven't. To me, the best picture in Scripture of one being offended with Jesus is John the Baptist. Because you remember, I mean, John, John had something I would love. Jesus shows up to be baptized has this conversation, who's worthy and who's not, but John baptizes him. A voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove and lands upon Jesus. I mean, John gets the full package. He's been saying he, he is the Elijah. He is the proclaimer of preparing the way. He is the forerunner that's preparing the way for Jesus to come. Jesus arrives and John goes, he's here. This is him. Then he gets arrested. And while he's in jail, he gets discouraged. And he gets discouraged because things aren't working out the way he thought. And in that worry, offense begins to set in his heart. And he gets his disciples, not Jesus' disciples, his disciples, sends them to Jesus and says, Okay, I just want you to ask Jesus one question. That's all I need, one question. And here's the question. Are you Messiah or do we look for someone else? The guy who heard God, who saw the dove, who baptized, his question to Jesus is, are you Messiah or did I get it wrong? Should I look for somebody else? Now, why? Because Jesus, John along the way, got the same view of Jesus that Judas had. He was expecting political freedom. And he's in a political prison right now. It's kind of gross how he got there. But he's in a political prison right now. And he's about to die. He doesn't know it exactly, but I'm sure he's feeling like things aren't going to go his way too well. And Jesus' answer to John's one question is this. Okay, just tell John this. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are being raised, the gospel is being preached to the poor. And then here's the clincher. And tell John, blessed is he who's not offended by me. Jesus knew what John's problem was. He had gotten offended. Folks, if John the Baptist can get offended because Jesus didn't do what he thought Jesus should do, how much more prone are we to be offended when things get difficult? But God in his great love and mercy has told us over and over and over and over, persecution, tribulation will come. Not might, not maybe, will come. And it's going to be so intense... 
the people in the church will get offended and then they're going to betray each other. Takes it even a step further. They're going to hate each other. And how can that happen? That can only happen if we allow love to grow cold. Because where there is an absence of love, hate can move in. Where there is an absence of love, offense can move in. If we aren't loving God, as the great Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might. If that is not the declaration of our life, it is going to be easy for us to be offended when things don't go the way we think they should. I have no idea what that looks like. Jesus just says, look it, they're going to kill you. I mean, and quite frankly, dying is the easy part. It's getting to death that's going to be the hard part. You know, once you're dead, you're like, whoa, here I am forever. You know, my, my blip in eternity is done. You know, that's why it's so imperative we have an eternal mindset and not a temporal mindset. We need to, to recognize and remember this life we live isn't even a blip on the line of eternity, but it serves a purpose that's eternal. So we need to make sure we don't get offended. How do we make sure we don't get offended with God? We must pursue love. We must pursue love. Pursue love, pursue love, pursue love. This is what John said. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, if you read the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the, the, the theme in all four of those letters, all four of those books is the same. The primary theme is love. This is what Paul says, beloved, I mean what John says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And if everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It's not an elective. It's a command. It is a command. I already read, you know, I already told you, um, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. I want to read to you what Jesus says in John 15. John 15, verse 12, and John 15, verse 17. Here's John 15, verse 12. It's not in the notes, so you've got to actually use your Bible. Okay? He says this, John 15, 12. This is my commandment. He didn't say this is my option. This is my multiple choice. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Then in verse 17, he says, these things I have commanded you, that you love one another. Guys, love is the key to everything. There is nothing that is not motivated and cannot be overcome by love. That's why it is so important that we live up to what we say. You cannot look like to love and to look like Jesus. Let me tell you, you cannot look like Jesus if you don't love like Jesus. And how do we love like Jesus? We pursue it. 
How do you pursue it? First of all, you got to know him. you got to know truth. <clears throat> My word is truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. The only way you walk in freedom is to know truth. The only way you can love is to know the true love, and that's to know God and to know his son. And so I want to make certain we are a small community, and God has kept us small for a reason. You know, I've always said this. Special forces are the most powerful, but they're the smallest. Whether you're Navy SEALs or you're Green Beret, it's a group of fine-tuned, well-honed soldiers that know the mission and have the skills to accomplish it. Our mission is to pray out of motivation of love and to pray his kingdom to come and see God transform a city. That's who we are. That's what we're here for. That's what God's called us to do. We are an authentic prayer community with an end times perspective. You know, that um, we, we are called to love and to look like Jesus. That's who we are. It's pretty simple. But we can't do any of it if love is not our motivation. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you just didn't say, okay, love, and then we had to figure it out. You've told us over and over and over that you loved us before we even knew you, that you not only made a way for love, but you showed us what love looks like. You compel us over and over and over again that the test of our love is not how we love like the taxpayer, tax gatherers, but how do we love our enemies? How do we love those who don't love us, who persecute us, who revile us, who speak all kinds of evil against us falsely? How do we rejoice and be glad? We can only do that if we are motivated by one thing and one thing alone, and that is love. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking, in your gentleness, in your in incredibly wise way to teach us, that you will help us to see our blind spots when it comes to love, and that you will show us what we can do to remove those blind spot, spots and to love as Jesus loved, even to the point of greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his brother. Because we don't want to stand and be those who have allowed our love to grow cold and to become offended and have done all we can to survive in this world and miss the eternal reward that we're created for. So we love you, Father. We thank you for loving us. Teach us how to love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Go love somebody that you don't love. Um, and don't forget, I have a list right here. I'm going to put it on this, on this stand.